Hi, Liz Winstead, co-creator of The Daily Show and founder of Abortion Access Front, or as we call it, Abortion AF. Abortion AF is a nonprofit created by activists, organizers, and a variety of showbiz types who want to use our talents and platforms to raise awareness to the erosion of abortion access and create programs that help us reclaim this fundamental right. We help connect local abortion providers and activists with their community so folks can learn how to help clinics stay open, patients access care, and reverse the current decimation of bodily autonomy. We also get into good trouble exposing the lies of the anti-abortion movement at their churches, their rallies, and their religious-based fake abortion clinics where creepy people doing some sort of medical cosplay demonize folks seeking abortion care instead of providing it. Oh yeah, and our weekly podcast, Feminist Buzzkills Live, we use facts and humor to wade through the ever-changing news in this hellscape. To learn more or to make a donation, visit aafront.org. Exposing sexist ass clowns has never been more rewarding. Hi, Aaron. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Wave Over TV. Would you be so kind as to tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're working on? Uh, of course. My name's Aaron Waltke. Um, I am the Currently, the co-executive producer in Star Trek Prodigy. Uh, in the past, I was the uh, showrunner and executive producer and head writer uh, on Guillermo Toro's Tales of Arcadia on Netflix. Um, I also was a writer on Troll Hunters and a head writer on a spinoff of the Lego movie called Unikitty for Cartoon Network. And I've also written a bunch of stuff you haven't seen because it hasn't been released yet <laughs> or it never will be released. <laughs> so, um, you know, that, that's, that's my, my bag. And there's the, one of those things I definitely want to ask you about, uh, which is the Brave Little Toaster. Oh, um, yes. <laughs> yeah. Cause, cause th- this is a film that like, uh, I saw it when I was little. I loved it. It seems to have some kind of big cult following. And so I saw that at one point you were attached to this. And I would just would love to hear that story. Uh, yeah, sure. So that was, uh, uh, I, I kind of, you know, when, before I was writing full time, I was trying to break in, in in any way that I could. And, uh, you know, occasionally my, my, representation my managers would send me out on what were called open writing assignments and uh one of them was at a uh, a company called Waterman Entertainment that most famously had done like the Stuart Little films uh and uh the um Alvin and the Chipmunks live action remakes which made a crazy amount of money so that was essentially like their sort of bread and butter was finding these various uh properties that had some emotional sentimentality attached to them uh, and optioning them and, and doing sort of a live action CGI hi- animated hybrid film. And, uh, so myself and my writing partner at the time went in and, uh, you know, we, they showed us this big list of stuff, uh, of, uh, that they had the rights to. And, and I think they brought us in for something else. But then I saw on the list, I was like, Oh my gosh, that's, you, you have the rights to the brave little toaster. And, you know, I'm sure you're the same. You know, I was a child of the eighties. And what was interesting about that film was that it uh, it wasn't like a box office smash hit when it first came out in right. theaters, but you know it just so happened to be 
a movie that was made by everyone that went on to found Pixar. So it actually had like a way better uh, sort of storytelling sensibility than it probably should have. And uh, when it, it was also one of the first films that I think Disney Home Entertainment released on uh, on VHS this newfangled device that nobody quite knew what was going to happen. Of course it did gangbusters and a lot of people like myself, you know, wore that out watching it over and over again as a kid. So I knew the story inside and out and proceeded to, to just pitch like about how it had so many amazing relevant themes, especially today about the, the evils of planned obsolescence and the importance of taking care of what you have in your life and, um, and you know, I walked out of the meeting and, and my, my reps called and basically said, uh, you know, I don't know what you said in there, but they want you to write the brave little toaster movie. <laughs> so, so I, yeah, we proceeded to write uh, a few drafts of that. And, uh, you know, that, that movie is still, that script is still floating around somewhere. I think they, every so often I'd see a, 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 a thing pop up that said like, you know, uh, new director attached to Brave Little Toaster movie. So maybe it'll see the light of a day someday, but it was a really, uh, that was early on in my career and it was a really sort of interesting, eye-opening, uh, 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 you know, entree into feature filmmaking, um, you know, because uh, uh, before and after I'd written a lot of TV pilots and, and I mostly worked in like uh, online entertainment and eventually mostly television. Uh, but that, you know, it was really fun getting a chance to write that. And then eventually they brought us back to also write a feature uh, based on Heathcliff, the old uh, comic strip, which it's a real Heathcliff is a really interesting property because uh, it depends. There's a very distinct cutoff between uh, what age you are and whether you're like, oh, yes. I loved Heathcliff and yes. what the heck is Heathcliff? <laughs> um, yep. And for me, that, that was definitely a Saturday morning cartoon that I loved. So I was able to, we wrote a movie treatment based on that. That was sort of, I, from what I remember, the premise that we had pitched that, that they seemed to like was uh, kind of leaning into that of like everybody knows who Garfield is, but nobody knows who the lowly street cat Heathcliff is. And so he, it was almost like a uh, we pitched sort of a, a revenge tale almost. <laughs> nice. Had a very Alexander Dumas bent to it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So that was that was my one of my earlier uh, projects that I worked on, but it, you know, it was a lot of fun and I I still love that yeah. story a lot. Let me ask you like one of the things I always ask on the show is what's something you would say to your to your younger self. But in, in your case, I, I'm curious what you would say to your younger self that was watching stuff like Heath Left and the Brave Little Toaster. Uh what would you say what would you say to that to him? Oh gosh. Yeah, I mean, I I guess Specifically, I always felt like I was wasting my time watching them, but it, it was almost just like, oh, this is just like a thing that I'm doing instead of doing something important or productive. And something I've, I've long since realized is all of those strange fascinations or hobbies or time wasters or things that I just happen to be passionate about, but seemingly have no purpose, you know, at least in the world of, of creative writing and specifically screenwriting. Uh, the almost, I can point to every single element of just like, oh, I, you know, I really was into rocks and minerals in high school. And then there was a job that I got specifically because like rocks and crystals was like part of something that, a big part of the story. And I was, and I was like, well, I did win my school science fair with a project on the Mohs scale of hardness. <laughs> and so, and so, you know, it, all of them 
wound up be, becoming very relevant. And so I, I would say to my younger self, just keep watching that stupid, weird stuff. Keep pursuing those interests that's, that seem like only you care about them because you never know when they'll suddenly become the one thing that sets you apart <laughs> as, the, as the expert in the room. Tired of being tracked online? DuckDuckGo can help. Tracking is a comprehensive program. Trackers lurk nearly everywhere online from websites, emails, and even apps in your phone. That means you need a multi-pronged solution. DuckDuckGo's all-in-one privacy app can be used as an everyday browser with private search, tracking, blocking, encryption, and now email protection built in. It's the free, easy button for online privacy. Download the app today. DuckDuckGo. Privacy simplified. Hey there, boys and girls. It's your old podcast pal, Ralph Garman here, inviting you to invite me into your ear holes five days a week with my podcast, The Ralph Report. Join me, Eddie Pence, Steve Ashton, and the rest of the happy lunatics that make up the Garmy for as little as 15 cents a day. And for that, you get five shows a week filled with music and jokes and news and history and just so much good stuff that you're going to be glad you chose The Ralph Report. How do you listen? Well, it's pretty simple. Go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash The Ralph Report and sign up today. There's four amazing levels of subscription that you can join, each one with their own special bunch of benefits. So check it out. Listen to me, Ralph Garman, on The Ralph Report. Patreon.com slash The Ralph Report. I, I think that's well said. And, and so, you know, for me, that brings me to Star Trek Prodigy because I, I'm going through something similar where, you know, I, I grew up watching Voyager on television as it was airing. Um, I have strong feelings about that Tuvix episode, which we talked about, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is a whole other thing. Uh, but my niece is now of the age where she is seeing Star Trek Prodigy and, and through Star Trek Prodigy, Star Trek for the first time. And she is also now learning about Captain Janeway. And so thinking about like, what is something you would say to your younger self? I'm curious if you, if you have that sort of similar thing going on with the Star Trek work. Yeah, it was, it was very much a similar situation where like, I loved Star Trek growing up, but I, I didn't have, I don't think I had any other friends growing up that were like into Star Trek really much at all. It was more, it was more or less something that I was really into because my dad was really into it. And, you know, that it was sort of like our bonding thing, I guess. But even then, you know, uh, like I think I, I got way more into it even than he did (laughs) because he was very much like an original series guy and he liked, he liked the next generation, but I don't think he saw Deep Space Nine or Voyager or Enterprise or any of that. But like for me, I, it was uh, as much, uh, um, and something that kind of came out of the, the era I grew up in and just the way I kind of, my life was lived in growing up in central Indiana. You know, my house was literally between two cornfields. So like I, you know, there wasn't a whole lot to do beyond just keep my local blockbuster rented out of every sci-fi and fantasy movie or watch reruns of my favorite, you know, high concept sci-fi shows, uh, like on my local Fox affiliate, which, uh, curiously, at right at when I got home from school, they would air two episodes of of Next Generation and eventually D- Deep Space Nine back to back in sequential order. 
every day. So like it was just part of my routine. I would just come home, spend some hang out, you know, at Terok Noor, uh, or hang out with Captain Janeway for a little bit. And then I would, you know, go off and do something productive. But, you know, it, it was a great sort of, um, uh, it was. It became almost like a a ritual in my life. Of just, there was always that comfort of, especially in the Berman era of Star Trek, where everything was connected and paying attention to every little detail. You were rewarded by watching every episode. And it's like, oh my gosh, Picard's playing the flute again. He did. Th- that's from Inner Light two seasons ago. Um, and so that was really kind of my first sort of organic exposure to world building, you know, and was, and I didn't really recognize it as such, but it was just sort of like, well, yeah, of course everything means something and everything's connected. And, you know, there were so many, especially in the animation, but also in live action science fiction, you know, even if no one else seemed to care or was paying attention, it seemed like the writers almost always were trying to create some sort of continuity between everything. So I was the type of kid who would pay attention to the backstory of the original Transformers and freak out when, uh, you know, in Beast Wars, they find like the the cradle, the ark where uh, Optimus Prime crash landed a million years ago on uh, in the pilot of the original Transformers, and then like, oh my, oh my God, it's it's true. They're doing it. They're doing it. <laughs> so, so like, same, yeah. So like that that it was it it never occurred to me that that there would be shows made by people that didn't just sort of <laughs> uh, obsessively study every single little story point <laughs> and character moment, like uh, that they some of them might have just been making it up a l- as they went along. You know, um, and I loved, for instance, X-Files. X-Files was fantastic, but I had convinced myself that everything mattered and everything was connected. And then, then I think as they got into later seasons, it felt like they kept pulling the rug back or it's like, oh, actually, no, we're, we're just kind of making it up as we go along. Um, which is fine. That's a totally fine way of making television, but my brain was just hardwired by the Star Trek universe to, to watch shows like that. And, you know, it was only reinforced by watching it with my dad who introduced me to Star Trek. Uh, I've, I've said elsewhere that one of my earliest memories is watching the pilot for Star Trek The Next Generation live way back in September of 1987. And then, like, some of the earliest movies I can remember going to with my dad, just he and I, were all the Star Trek movies. And that was, like, our thing that we did. And, you know, I got to see some stuff, like, probably younger than I should have, you know, because <laughs> because it was, like, under the umbrella of, oh, it's science fiction, so it's educational somehow. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. It's fascinating. You know, it seems like the, the baby boomer generation has that same story of they love the OG Star Trek. They watch the next generation. Mostly they love it. Uh, my dad was a little hesitant with it for a while, but then came around. Um, and then we're sort of like of that, because you and I are about the same age. If not, I think I might be slightly older. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're of the same age where everything was interconnected. And, and so I, I'm curious about how you approach this now for, for the kids that don't know all this stuff. Cause you did a really fascinating thing with having Janeway as a hologram, right? Cause it sort of frees you of all of the Janeway continuity without throwing it all away necessarily. And so I thought that was brilliant. Was that, was that by design where you were like, kids are going to come in, they're not going to know Janeway and Voyager. Uh, so here's a good entry point for her. 
Yeah, it was something that that we were wrestling with in the very, very early days of development of the show because we didn't want it to be. We we wanted it to be able to stand on its own two feet and and be an entry point for both new and young audiences because we uh, that's something I had heard over and over again from every you know every single person who either was a newbie to Star Trek or had young kids uh, and the and. Every other show starts with people that are just basically seasoned veterans on the bridge, issuing commands. Everyone knows their roles, uh, highly competent, and uh, this military chain of command, which is all great. I, you know, I I loved it because my dad loved it, and I was like, oh, this is cool because my dad likes it. But uh, I think in this sort of peak TV era, where the sens- sensibilities have shifted a little bit, and you're expected every every season to feel like a movie that will draw you in and stuff, it's a little harder, I think, for younger people to just be thrown into watching people in these space pajamas, you know, <laughs> issuing complex psych- techno babble. Uh, which you know they'll grow to love it. I'm not worried about that. But you, but I think yes. it just takes a little bit of a of an finding an entry point. And so that was something that was very imperative for our show was, okay, how can we sell people on this stuff and show them why it's important and explain very clearly like what the, what these fundamental building blocks of the Star Trek universe are so that way when they do have a, a, a decent sort of understanding of it through our show, through the lens of these sort of not quite tabula rasa, but, but uh, characters that maybe don't have hardly any exposure to the Federation and by proxy the greater Star Trek universe, then – uh, you know, they they can then go on to other shows and say, "Oh my gosh, it's it's Captain Janeway," you know. Um, right. And and the hologram aspect was something. As soon as we, you know, we we were like, "Let's use a hologram, no matter what," because that, you know, I think that would be great. And then this is very very early days. We were like, "Well, how how can we make make it feel like resonance?" And we kind of had two options. One was just create a new character, you know. Or, you know, if you look at like the Zimmerman holograms, for instance, from as seen in Voyager and elsewhere, uh, the Doctor was very much based on its creator, Dr. Zimmerman. And then you see in Deep Space Nine uh, that they're creating an EMH Mark II that's based on Bashir. So like, oh, there's actually like an interesting little nugget of Star Trek lore that we we could use to bring in a familiar face, but have it be a totally new character. And that was something that I, I as soon as I mentioned that, I, you know, everybody got very excited. And, and uh, spoiler alert, you know, if, if you haven't seen Star Trek Prodigy, you know, I'll, I'll pause it and binge it and then come back. Uh, you know, at the very end of the first season, you see, in fact, that uh, Vice Admiral Janeway does come into the story in pursuit of the Protostar. So it was this—it was a sort of like sleight of hand we were able to do to yes. introduce these characters to the Star Trek universe on on their own terms, and then reveal that that very sort of vehicle, literal and metaphorical, that we've created uh, to, to propel them into the, the the world of the Federation also has the Federation coming to them in the form of the legacy character played by the, the amazing Kate Mulgrew. So that, that it was it was this fun sort of slingshot effect we were able to uh, manifest, and thankfully everybody we pitched it to was totally on board and has given us the leeway to to you know di- drill down and dig in and essentially do what we we feel is best for the story. This is Rosie Tran from Rosie and BJ Save the World, a podcast asking big questions and discussing how to solve these big issues. This is a podcast for people just like you who ask. 
Has the war on drugs been successful? Do we need universal basic income? Should we legalize sex work? Go to rosieandbjsavetheworld.com to get more confused. Do you want to grow your audience without sacrificing your privacy? Then the Stupid Sexy Privacy miniseries is just for you. It's a short, special presentation that will run every Thursday morning right here on Weiwo.tv for the next 23 weeks. In each short episode, we'll teach you how to preserve as much of your privacy as possible while still participating in the creator economy. You'll also hear from top privacy and disinformation experts who will teach you how to protect yourself from fascists and weirdos. And who doesn't want that? So make sure you're subscribed to Weiwo.tv where all podcasts can be found and we'll see you every Thursday morning for a special presentation of Stupid Sexy Privacy, a Weiwo.tv miniseries. And do you have the same sort of experience that you had, like, thinking about writing The Brave Little Toaster and the connection of watching it when you were little with writing dialogue and coming up with lines and scenes for Kate Mulgrew to act out? Like, did you have that same sort of was happening kind of moment? <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it's, so, it's funny because sometimes when I'm thrust into what could be a, a, a challenging situation, my, uh, my brain kind of shifts into this mode of like, well, no, one's gonna, no one else is going to do it but me, so I, I just have to act like I know what I'm doing and I can do this correctly. And, in, and this gets more into, I guess, my own creative process, but being able to trick yourself into that mode of just like, all right, let's put on the hat of, of the, the, the competent uh, creative person and pretend like, and be absolutely self-assured that this is the right way things need to be done. It, it does create its own sort of magnetism, I guess, uh, both with others and with your own sort of creative writing. Like, okay, let's, let's, you, you've created that North Star. Now let's sail straight on till morning. Um, and yeah, so for, in that, in, in both cases, but especially with Star Trek, you know, I went in as what I quickly realized is probably one of the biggest Star Trek writers on the show in terms of sheer fandom. And, you know, I have a pretty encyclopedic knowledge of it that I, that I learned just through sheer osmosis where it's like, you know, if I don't know something immediately, I, I just get this sort of like almost like psychic sense of like, wait a second, that feels off. Let me, let me research to see if we can, why that feels off. And then I'll, I can d- deep dive into the, the episodes or whatever. Like, ah, okay, here's how we can justify it. Uh, which is something that can only come from having seen every Star Trek episode and movie, which is absurd to ask of anyone <laughs> to, to do in order for a, a job that's going to last eight months. But we, we had a pretty broad spectrum of people that, that, you know, ranged from people like me who've seen everything and then other people who had like, they'd seen some of the movies and had like their favorite show, you know, like Enterprise or, yeah. or, or Next Generation or whatever. Um, and then, and then, you know, being able to kind of have that, that dialogue between me being able to kind of put on the sunglasses of the, the hardcore, uh, you know, Trekkie of saying like, this is what I expect to see. And then also being able to shift over to the, well, what would a total outsider expect to see or need to understand? And then having an, an interesting sort of dialectic between those two. Uh, sort of conceits of what your audience might be, 
uh, it, it arrived a way to basically surprise even the Star Trek fans, you know, by, by deconstructing and then reconstructing uh, out of uh, the base building blocks in a way you might not expect, but seems apparent all along. It's fascinating because it sounds so much like uh, the process communications method, right? Like where in one presentation you're you're speaking to both audiences with everything that you say, right? Like there's people moving towards pain, uh, towards pleasure, you're speaking to them, and the people that are moving away from pain, you're speaking to them. And, and so, like you came from, uh, you were studying psychology in college, so like I'm wondering if if that has flown through to your work today. Yeah, I you know I think. This one aspect, for for instance, in Star Trek Prodigy in particular, is something that we looked at a lot was child psychology and child development. Um, and something I sort of brought up consistently was the concept of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is the, you know, to kind of put it in layman's terms, it's this belief that in order to create a, a fully functional, self-actualized person, you know, you you need certain levels of needs met uh, that sort of form an ascending pyramid, uh, and until you can be like a fully realized human being, and you know, we realize, and the basic of the basic building block is like stuff like food and shelter, and then above that is sort of like a, a nurturing, you know, a nurturing sort of family relationship, or or, and then above that is you know sort of. Uh, you know, education and stuff like that. But so, so we were, we looked at Star Trek prodigy of like, okay, if, if we are pulling them out of that utopia that we're so used to seeing in Star Trek, what does that look like? You know? And, and it was like, oh, well maybe the, the sort of the selfish people and, or the people that are a little bit uh, more jaded or sarcastic uh, that you don't see as much in, on the bridge of the enterprise D for instance, uh, maybe that's because they have had ev- literally everything provided in- to them in a post-scarcity society. And if you put, if you sort of take someone out of an environment that doesn't have all those in- amazing utilities, like the food replicator that can, that can just manifest anything you ever need, and a-, a society that can support you without the need for currency, and and your greatest pursuit is just intellectual curiosity. And instead, thrust them into a, a place where you are just scrabbling to survive, uh, and it is very doggy dog. What happens if you take someone out of that environment and show them that there's a better way? And you know, I think we all held the belief that anyone is capable of of changing and becoming a better person if they want to be, um, and if they're given the opportunity. And so that that very much informs sort of our storytelling of like seeing all of these sort of rough around the edges characters that maybe don't quite belong together, sort of scattershot, slowly, you know, finding uh, a new path and a new uh, future towards salvation uh, when given this incredible possibilities uh, provided by the, the USS Protostar that they find and the the Federation that it represents. Brilliantly said. Uh, let me ask you real quick before I get to my last question. Um, sure. What? Where can we find you? Where would you like us to check out some of your upcoming work? Oh, sure. So um, you can find me uh, on social media, uh, Twitter and Instagram and stuff. Uh, my my handle is at Good Aaron. That's G O O D A A R O N. Uh, 
it's just easier to spell <laughs> than my my uh, Prussian last name that has way too many consonants in a row. Um, uh, and I usually post updates to all my work, you know, everywhere. Uh, 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 but uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm most active on Twitter and Instagram. That's great. Uh, so my last question for you is what. If you had to start completely over from scratch and you had to re- relearn writing, right? Like, what's the first thing that you think you would do that you would learn? Um, I think the the thing I would need to relearn or I, I would teach myself would be, um, you know, kind of trust your instinct. You know, I, I think that the things that, that you gravitate towards as being funny or strange or cu- curious are the, the very fuel that will propel your storytelling and set you apart if done right. Because I think it's very easy to look at like a Tarantino movie and say, I'll just write uh, something like Reservoir Dogs. But then you've basically just written a copycat of Reservoir Dogs. And, the, and you know, it's, I think something I tell a lot of younger writers is like, it's, it's yes, it's important to understand your craft, but also if you want to tell stories, you have to have something to say, which means you have to have a life and you have to live uh, and experience things that you can then translate into stories to the screen or stage or in a novel. Um, and if you only live in other people's stories, I think sometimes that could be a little bit more challenging. Um, not impossible, but I, I think usually the best stories uh, and the people that make the biggest splash are the people that take something from their own personal journey and from their own uh, sort of wide berth of of interests or experiences and then translate that through the lens of all of the culture that's inf- influenced them and the stories that they already love, know they love and use that as sort of like a, a springboard to learn how to tell their own. This is Greg Goldstein. And I'm the applause sign operator here at Weiwo TV. But turning this cute little sign on is only a small part of what I do with the show. I also pay the bills. So if you like what you just heard, and you want to hear more episodes of Weiwo TV, let me share with you how I make the money to pay those bills. Knock, knock. Who's there? Broken pencil. Broken pencil who? Never mind. There's no point. (laughs) Did you know that laughter is a distinctive human characteristic meant to help calm us down? You see, the business of marketing may be ever-changing, but people have been documented trying to make each other laugh since ancient Greece. That's why, at That Funny Agency, we're more than just digital marketing professionals with years of big agency experience. We're also professional comedians, artists, actors, writers, and musicians who have a unique insight into the science of happiness. At our digital marketing agency, we use our innate humor to bring people closer together. Customer to business, collaborator to client, friend to friend. It's almost like funny is our middle name. Oh wait, it is. So come laugh with us, journey with us, grow with us at thatfunnyagency.com. We're That Funny Agency. Strategic 360-degree digital marketing by unapologetically funny people. That's it for this episode of Weiwo TV. Our announcer, editor, and producer is Jonathan Ingram. Additional editing is provided by Andrew Van Voorhees. And those dulcet tones you hear are those of Rosie Tran, Crixley, Colton Hagen, and Elise Randall Monica. And of course 
Our show is hosted by Mr. B.J. Mendelson, recording at the George Carlin Podcast Studio. So, folks, stay strong, stay safe, and stay sexy. Thanks for listening. Okay, your, your, your middle name is Macho, but uh, I'm wondering if you ever cry. You ever, has Macho Man ever cried? Oh, yeah. Really? Uh-huh. It's okay for macho men to show every emotion available right there, you know, because I've cried a thousand times, I'm going to cry some more. But I've soared with the eagles and I've slithered with the snakes and I've been everywhere in between. And I'm going to tell you something right now. There's one guarantee in life and that there are no guarantees. Yeah. And I understand this. Yeah. Nobody likes a quitter. Nobody said life was easy. So if you get knocked down, take the standing eight count, get back up and fight again. Did you enjoy today's show? If you did, please take a minute and leave us a review. Yes, we know you're busy and every podcast asks you to do this, but there's a good reason they do. Because every time you leave a review, that review helps more people find and listen to the show. And you know what that means for you? More great episodes of Weiwo.tv. So what are you waiting for? Take out your phone and leave us a review right now before you move on to something else and forget about us. And we'll see you next time, right?